The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. Circumstance that you find difficult to see, um, you know, or when you see it, there's some stress or some suffering. It might be something personal. It might be, you know, thinking about Thanksgiving and uh, who's going to be at the dinner table on Thursday, um, and how do I navigate with that person? Um, because here's, you know, here's where we, we, we can't navigate together. Or it might be something more, um, a little more distant. It might be something in the political world. There certainly are lots of um, uh, uh, circumstances going on that, um, you know, really causes some stress or suffering and um, difficulty. Uh, so I'd like uh, to invite you to really bring that, whatever that circumstance is, um, into your mind as we go through this and to uh, maybe reflect a little bit on how might this work in that, in that circumstance or not. Um, I was in the coffee shop this morning. I often go to the coffee shop to to work, and uh, one of the regulars who's always there, and I've never spoken to him before. He said, he looked at me and he said, "I saw you in the at the front porch in Mantio uh, a few weeks ago," <laughs> and I said, "Yeah," and um, so we started to talk and sure enough um, I, you know I forgot to tell you I'm so sorry that I would be away for two months down in down at the Outer Banks and I was indeed in the coffee shop in Mantio and so he said yeah and so it was really sort of fun to bump into this guy who I had not seen and I had seen him a million times at Starbucks here but did not see him in when I was in the coffee shop in Mantio, um, which is particularly striking. He's a very uh, large and very, you know, uh, present guy, and he has a very large and very lovely service dog. So it's, it's not just some, you know, somebody who's sort of easily missed. And the coffee shop in Mantio has about, you know, four people in it, and I didn't see him. Um, so we, we talked for a while, but it was so interesting to me and it seemed sort of uh, uh, fitting with the talk that I wanted to do um, th that, you know, to, you know th these places where here I, you know, I walked in, I got my coffee, I sat down, I did my thing, and I didn't see someone who was right in front of my face, right, right there. Um, that my perception was sort of organized in a particular way, um, and, I, and I didn't see him. Um, and it reminded me of Manindra's quote. He said, you know, somebody asked Manindra once why he meditated. And he said, so I, I will see, when I walk into the market, so I will see the purple flowers, you know. And it wasn't like, oh, so it'll be nice and sweet and everything will be lovely. He was saying, you know, it's so I will see more broadly. Uh, so I won't be constrained. I won't be just like in this little narrow tunnel the little narrow tunnel I was obviously in in the coffee shop at Mantio, that I will actually see more broadly and take more information in um, that will give me more um, capacity 
to navigate the world. Um, and the, so the, the Buddha and his uh, teaching, he taught about 40, depending on how you count, it's either 40 or 84,000 different ways of meditating, about 40 that you can actually like count, um, different ways of meditating. And it wasn't really to become really good at sitting still. Um, it was to really be able to, to see, to see, to see, to understand what's going on here. Where is suffering? What is its cause? Um, and how can I be released? Uh, both internally and released in the sense of acting in the world in such a way that I'm not causing more suffering. And certainly we're um, confronted with that kind of situation all the time, you know. How do I be with this uh, without suffering, even if it's difficult, um, and without uh, reacting in a way that's causing more suffering? And the Buddha was a scientist. You, you know, we've talked about that a lot, a very practical scientist. It wasn't like, let's think up a bunch of rules or a bunch of theories, or a bunch of ideas about things, um, but really looking carefully at how this works. So again, I'm going to remind you about whatever that circumstance is that you're um, inquiring into. Inviting an inquiry, how does this work? If I am suffering with it, if I'm stressed by it, how does this work for me? Um, Kalu Rinpoche said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. Like me in the coffee shop, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. The Buddha compared it to, um, we see things as though we're looking at a mirage. Um, that it's really an illusion that we think, we, we think it's real. Um, and so the invitation of our whole practice is to be able to see more clearly what's true, what's real, and more fully, what's real. Um, in, in his teachings, the Buddha didn't say, don't have views about things. You know, don't have you know, perspectives on things. Don't have perceptions of how things are. He didn't say, don't have them. He said, um, uh, he, he, he said to release the tendency to automatically believe them all, identify with them, cling to them, go to war for them. Uh, you know, that we can see the way that we perceive things, but we don't necessarily have to cling to them in ways that cause us suffering and cause suffering for others. In the Metta Sutta, the very last line, lines, um, this is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding fixed views, fixed perceptions of things. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, I would say being freed from clinging to all sense desires, is not born again into this world meeting the world of suffering. 
by not holding fixed views. So the problem is that we have these views or these perceptions of things and that they get fixed and then we live within the fixedness uh, and we suffer. Um, There's a story that... um, the Buddha was meditating in a forest and a Brahmin came through who was sort of a, a, a professional pundit, sort of the Sean Hannity of the time. Um, and he said, I've heard about you. What kind of teaching do you proclaim? And what he was doing was he was trying to kind of goad the Buddha into saying something that he could then argue with. And of course the Buddha knew that. He had that kind of sight that he understood a street confrontation when he saw one. And the Buddha said, I proclaim such teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world. And so the Sean Hannity just kind of went, and he left because he failed to elicit a struggle from the Buddha. And we could read that or hear that to be like, you know, well, he's just wishy-washy and he just doesn't have an opinion. He doesn't have a view. Uh, But the Buddha was talking about the fixed views that cause us to go to war, whether it's war over Turkey or war over whatever it is that's in the news today. When he went back to the monastery, um, his, uh, his monks asked him about you know, what he meant. He said, when the mind doesn't grab hold of things, that's what brings about the end of quarrels, disputes, and malicious speech, the end of suffering. So when the mind doesn't like fix and contract, you know, when I was in that coffee shop, my, my, my whole view was kind of contracted, Um, it was narrow. Um, So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how this works for us as we read the morning news, you know, as we go through the 24-hour news cycles, whether it's externally or internally in our own minds. We have 24-hour news cycles in our own mind. Mine gets really active at 2.30 in the morning. How about yours? Um, you know, my news cycle gets really cooking about all the things I need to do. Um, uh, where this loop where we, you know, we kind of worry about things or we think about, you know, um, what's right or what's wrong or what's good or what's bad. Um, and, you know, we just keep wondering, don't we? You know, how am I going to deal with ex-Uncle Albert at the Thanksgiving dinner table or um, uh, those relatives and neighbors and friends who have different views about things, uh, all those things that are in the news about, you know, sexual misconduct, um, kneeling for the Confederate, for the anthem, the Confederate, you know, monuments, um, whatever, you know. So our practice invites us to slow down. Like the Buddha. To look and see what's here. It's really what we're doing while we're meditating. 
We're not trying to learn how to get really tight around paying attention to our breath. We're trying to learn how to relax and be spacious and then within that look and see what's going on with the breath, what's needed. And it's the same whether we're sitting in our meditation cushion, walking into a coffee shop, or having Thanksgiving dinner, or watching the news. We're invited to see the universal difficulties of life, to not take them so personally, to be able to see them without being immediately triggered into reactivity, to see impermanence, to be able to watch it, um, and to watch these things that we can't control. We don't, you know, and to see what's needed, to see what we need to do. With respect to impermanence, when I'm at the ocean, I'm generally much more aware. Part of it is just having a lot more spaciousness in my life. But it's really so lovely. Um, I said to my husband the other day, I said, you know, when I'm home, I often don't see the changes in the weather the way I do when I'm there. You know, I sit and, you know, the light changes or the wind comes up or dies down or the ducks start to quack or the um, clouds come over or the sun comes out and then it isn't. Um, that we can really kind of slow down and see the impermanence and the infinite causes and conditions that are behind absolutely everything. Um, So the perception that is most encouraged, not these narrow little perceptions, but the perception that is most encouraged by the Buddha is impermanence, to see the changes. So as we look at the breath, to see the changes and to be able to just with that kind of spaciousness and that kind of ease to simply observe it and to see that nothing is absolutely anything. Nothing is absolutely anything. I've been um, contemplating that a lot lately and really curious about Roy Moore and I've been contemplating nothing is absolutely anything. If I don't have a fixed view, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it imply? I've been really curious. Nothing is absolutely anything, Ajahn Suchito says. Everything is moving and shifting depending on how we look at it. Nothing is absolutely so. by not holding fixed views. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision is not born again into suffering. Nothing is absolutely so. Modern science is just beginning to catch up to the Buddha. We learn from modern science that our perceptions are unreliable. 
and that they have been constructed by our brains to help us create coherence and meaning. Indeed, science is beginning to acknowledge and agree with the Buddha that there are actually no permanent things, that nothing is absolutely so. We could go on for a long time, and people much wiser than I could go on for a long time about the modern science um, that is demonstrating that over and over and over again. The Buddha was right about that. On the surface, it doesn't seem right. You know, when we look at our experience just sort of superficially, it doesn't seem right. Um, Because all of us as humans are long and deeply programmed by evolution to see things, to perceive things in fairly quick and narrow forms. Are like little lizards um, that we quickly perceive things and determine quickly whether or not it's good for us, whether or not it's good to eat, um, good for our health, good for our life, whether or not you know we're in danger, whether or not it's good for reproduction sexually, whether or not it's good for us. And our little lizard brains, our quick little brains, respond very quickly with our perceptions of things. It's just how our brains have evolved. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's not something to fix or change. It's just how we are as people, that our brains perceive things in fairly small increments very, very quickly um, and then become quite convinced that that's reality. It's just what evolution has brought us to. Sort of like the software program in our computers. You know, we have this software in our DNA um, that um, leads us to these kind of narrow perceptions. Um, It's not a mistake and it doesn't need to be fixed as far as it goes. Uh, Our evolution just um, brought us uh, with these particular skills that help us reproduce, help us stay healthy, help us stay alive. Good. The the problem the Buddha and now modern science uh, uh, are telling us is that if we hold these views as fixed, as we kind of narrow and constrain and cling to those views, that's when we get into trouble for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Perceptions, Ajahn Suchita goes on to say, have some truth in them, but they are partial. Science is telling us that they are about, what do you think, how much percent (laughs) truth? Five percent truth. We take in about 5% of the available data. They're blurred, but these tendencies build up intense configurations. Ajahn Suchita calls them wax models that walk around larger than life. 
We can be fighting with some monstrous perception that the mind has created about self or others. Have you noticed that? Five <laughs> percent. If we're lucky, I have five percent of the data about Roy Moore. I'm really lucky. Uh, Rick Hansen in Buddha's Brain. He says, everything changes. That's the universal nature of outer reality and inner experience. Therefore, there's no end to disturbed equilibria as long as you live. But to help you survive, your brain keeps trying to stop the river, struggling to hold dynamic systems in place, to find fixed patterns in this variable world, and to construct permanent plans for changing conditions. I'm looking at how I can shorten this. So from the moment we're born, we start with these perceptions and the narratives, the stories that go with them. And then we choreograph our whole lives around them. I had a a certain perception and a narrative and a whole dance as I walked into that coffee shop. It worked fine. It worked fine. You know. And so it would work fine unless it doesn't. And there are all sorts of circumstances where it doesn't. A relatively small portion of these dances are consciously known. Very small portion of these dances are consciously known. What scientists refer to as explicit memory and most of what we refer to as true. Um, uh, these, all of these programs, however, are constructed partly from the lizard who's trying to be safe and in control of what is in fact a tenuous and ever-changing world and partly secondary to the unique aspects of the particular programmers, the particular family or tribe or set of experiences that we um, encountered in our in, in our programming periods, especially in our early lives. Over time, it takes very little to trigger them. And we live within these programs, these perceptual programs, as though they were true and um, as though we know they were true. The original title of this talk was, But I'm Right and You're Wrong. You know? Did you ever have that thought? You know? You know, we live within these programs. And then we know that we're right um, because we're within our own perceptions. Some of the operations are conspicuous, but most of the time they operate in the background. The mind leaps to conclusions and in the process is no longer able to be mindful of this moment's experience. It moves into action and reaction that is ignorant of the reality of the situation and can be harmful to self and others. The title of the talk actually, um, where uh, daring, the title of the talk is Daring to See. Um, And it comes from a book that I read. um, I just am fascinated by perception and stories and so I talk about it a lot. And I read this book called Crashing Through. 
And the subtitle um, had to do with the man who dared to see. And it's the story of a man named Mike May. And he, um, it started out, I think the first uh, line of the book said, uh, Mike May's life was perfect. And he was somebody who was an award-winning speaker. He was much in demand. Um, he was a former CIA man. He was uh, married. He had a beautiful wife. He was a loving father of two. He was a three-time Olympic gold medalist and current world record holder in downhill speed skiing. He was an entrepreneur on the verge of bringing a portable global positioning system to the blind. He was a co-inventor of the world's first laser turntable. He had spent time living in a mud hut in Ghana, and he had been blind since he was three. Remember I told you he was an Olympic gold medal, Paralympic. He was a Paralympic gold medalist in downhill speed skating. Um, And he had been blind since the age of three, so he was completely blind. And through a kind of odd series of events, um, he ran into an ophthalmologist who said, you know, we can restore your sight. Uh, And his life was really pretty good. And so he really had to think about whether or not he wanted to see. So um, he went through the, uh, of course, you know, the book, he he went through the um, operation And um, uh, he um, had a terrible time because his perceptual ability, his visual perceptual ability was back where it was when he, basically when he was born. His brain had lost the capacity to organize perceptions into things. He could see shapes, he could see movement, he could see color, but he couldn't put them together into any coherent, meaningful array. Um, He couldn't ski anymore because he thought shadows were real things. Um, He couldn't tell what was a mogul and what was flat. He couldn't tell the difference between men and women. Uh, He was walking down the street one day and there was this shape, this big shape, um, and he couldn't figure out what it was. And then he managed, he looked at it a really, 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 really long time and he saw that it had this, it had a head and then it had an arm. And he finally made out that it was a homeless man sleeping on the ground. But that he had just a terrible time. He was on an airplane one time and he was talking to the woman next to him and he said, how can you tell which person is the flight attendant? That his brain had lost the capacity to organize information into the perceptions that we take for granted. And it was, it, um, it was said that he, um, his ability to see was sort of like a really, really, really bad security camera at your local 7-Eleven. 
that the best he could, he could come up to with a lot of practice. Um, and at one point he even um, very seriously considered stopping the medication that would, that, that would allow his body to reject the, the transplant that enabled him to see. It was so difficult. He lost the capacity to do basically everything that he had been able to do, that he had been able to learn how to do. And what was really interesting to me about that is that it showed so clearly how our perceptions form and that we kind of organize this color and movement and shape um, and understanding and stories and narratives into some particular form and then we live within it um, as though it's real. Um, and we are willing to go to war for it. The way Mike May managed ultimately um, was to, um, he realized that he was actually kind of fighting himself and his seeing eye dog and that he, because he kept second guessing the dog um, and trying, you know, trying to figure out, do I follow the dog? Do I, do I follow my eyes? Um, and that he had to learn how to coordinate with those other senses that had learned how to navigate the world and kind of fit it together rather than rely so exclusively on his sight. But what was, um, his doctor, one of his doctors said, a lot of, peop a lot of what people see is based on their assumptions and expectations about the world. Just like me in that coffee shop, what I saw was based on my, on my assumptions and my expectations. I did not see the German Shepherd in a coffee shop with four other people. You know, I didn't see it. So, um, it's, this, it's the process, it's the normal process by which we navigate our world and through which we are willing to go to war. Carol Wilson says, when our sense organs encounter an object, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the, pro to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all your accumulated habits and past experiences, the whole process is entirely subjective. We are fabricating our world. When your mind is full of anger, she goes on to say, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from clinging or fixation, whatever you do is in accordance with the way things are. You experience everything as primordially pure. By the time the tenth, tenth thought comes, it believes the fifth one as true, and it has always been true. When it's just a series of perceptions, stories, thoughts, narratives, guiding further perceptions, further stories, further narratives, you know, we can, we can watch how that all goes. Um, 
So how can this process be ended? And this is what the Buddha taught. Through a shift in perception caused by the way one, basically by the way one attends to perceptions. By the way one attends to feelings, thoughts, sensations, actions. Using the categories of appropriate attention, as the Buddha states, rather than viewing a particular thought or sensation or feeling or action as an appealing or unappealing thing as right or wrong, one should look at it as part of a causal process. When a particular thought or sensation or feeling or action is pursued, do skillful or unskillful qualities increase in the mind? If skillful qualities increase, it's what we were doing in the meditation. If skillful qualities increase, the thought or sensation or feeling or action may be pursued. If unskillful qualities increase, it shouldn't. Mm. That's a helpful guide. So when I'm thinking about Roy Moore or listening to the news, that's a helpful guide. Continuity of mindfulness breaks down our unconscious continuity of perception where only the perceptions that fit our previous view are let in. So if we have continuity of mindfulness, we keep paying attention and we look to see uh, what happens. How does this work? Is this wholesome? Is it skillful? Is it not? Dalai Lama says all of our difficulties result from mistaken perceptions. All of our difficulties result from getting into that narrow little alley, that little, little teeny 5%, uh, not noticing the whole picture um, and constraining I was playing with this. I was really interested in the regulation changes about the elephant, the elephants, because I love elephants, and was really playing with it. And I saw an article on um, how um, elephant hunting is good for uh, conservation. Um, and I know there's more to it than what I was reading, but it was really interesting to see it from uh, a different point of view. Um, I have a friend who um, has a very, 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 very large elk head hanging over the desk in his office. And I was horrified when I saw it. And really kind of, just kind of, again, narrowed my perception to that. It never occurred to me hadn't occurred to me until recently to ask him what that was about. <laughs> you know? What does that mean to you? Because I just interpreted the whole thing through that 5%. Now, I still might have a, 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 a particular response to it, or, but it might not be the same response as closing him out 
and making judgments about him um, because of his wrongness and my rightness about it all. So that the, you know, I still might have a view about whether or not one kills elk, um, but it might be a whole different quality of our relationship. Uh, if I can let myself kind of rest in a much larger field of inquiry, much like when we're sitting with our breath, this larger field of inquiry, we start with a quality of ease. We look for where there's ease. And then within that ease, we look to see what's happening here? What's going on? What's this like? And maybe could ask a question or two um, uh, across the turkey, you know? What, you know? What's that like for you? How do you see that? So we're now trying to create a, a new and better self. Uh, we're cultivating the capacity to see things with clear understanding. It's not I'm correct and you're incorrect, but being attuned to what's happening now, inside, outside, listening deeply, making 95% more space for it, being more, more curious, not reacting according to its feeling tone, but responding wisely with a wider perspective and with precision, skill, and wholehearted kindness. I would invite you to consider that with whatever that difficulty is that you're pondering, to maybe take it home and reflect on it a little bit. If I were to open a bit, to release the fixedness about my perceptions, the fixedness about my views, uh, you know, how would that be? To see with a wider and wider context, a, with a heart and a mind as big as the world, to see what is wholesome and healing in any given moment, which is different in any given moment. To release our reliance for myself and for others on what can never bring full satisfaction because anything is impermanent and made up of infinite causes and conditions. So the invitation of our practice is to rest in this mysterious unfolding of human life. This mysterious unfolding of the political circumstances in our world. This mysterious unfolding of what's mine to do? Speak, think, say. To kind of reach more widely. With a little bit less certainty and a little bit more ease. And maybe you'll see the dogs in the coffee shop. So blessings on your Thanksgiving.
and uh, I'll see you next week.